the path that they chose, what were what were the worst paths that could have come out because of, you know, if you just say, hey, he's retiring and that's it, that's the end of the investigation, immediately people start thinking, well, what is being swept under the rug here? Because on the surface, you look at yeah. this, it's not great if you have an no. official who is going on social media to, to not, defend not, themselves, not, not, but it's not also not the kind of thing that should end their job. think about it. Trevor Lane, thanks so yeah. much. That does it for us tonight. Banfield starts right now. Hey, everybody. Hello and welcome to the program. It is Thursday night, better known as Friday Eve on this program. It's great to have you here. Um, I'm going to do a little coverage on a serial killer. Uh, named BTK. And there's some things I'm going to show. I usually tell you this, and I think you know me by now. I want you to be really careful of people in the room. I'm going to show some pictures in a hot minute uh, that are really uncomfortable. Um, But you need to know something about the pictures. They are reenactments and they are new to you. Um, If you were watching Monday night, I showed you a whole bunch of pictures that Dennis Rader, the BTK killer, took of himself reenacting his filthy, disgusting torture crimes. He dressed up as his victims and put himself into like bound and, and, and hanging positions like he did to his victims. Tonight, it is a different series of pictures. Real weird, uh, like the other ones weren't, but this is weird in a different way in that he took pictures in what he called motel parties. He would check himself into a motel room for a party, but he was the only guest. And these were the pictures that he took. He'd reenact, yet again, his murderous crimes, what he did to his victims. He would dress in their lingerie because after he murdered them, he kept the clothing. And he would bind himself up and tie himself and hang himself and do all sorts of positions in these motel rooms. Motel parties, he called them, but he was the only guest. There is something very significant about these pictures. We're going to talk about it in a moment, especially since we are getting closer and closer And that's not my estimation. It is the investigator's estimation to actually putting him potentially close to some new cold case victims. So we're going to go into those pictures. And then I've also got something to tell you about what his daughter has said is in the other pictures, personal items that she recognizes from the family and the grandmother's house where Dennis Rader would do that kind of garbage business take photos of himself. Um, his, uh, his daughter has now identified a lot of personal items that she recalls as a child. Specifically, she remembers playing hide-and-seek in the same locations where he's binding himself up and reenacting his crime. So we're going to talk all about those details in a moment. You got your warning, but I'm going to give it to you again in a little bit because we're going to show a lot more pictures, and they are upsetting. Again, they're not the real victims. It's important to know that. The other story I want to bring to you tonight on this Thursday, Friday Eve, is um, death by nitrogen, courtesy of the state. Uh, It's a new way to kill people, sanctioned by the government, uh, lethal executions. Uh, It's getting harder and harder to kill our, you know, death row inmates because there's not a lot of drugs available to kill them. And the electric chair, mm, that's kind of outdated, even though it's on the books. And so... You know, firing squads become a real possibility in a couple of states. And now, death by nitrogen. Holy Dinah. So I'm going to explain a lot about what it is, nitrogen hypoxia, how the inmate dies. And then here's one for you, um, why some inmates are asking for it. 
Okay, so that's coming. Then the other story I have for you is super bonkers. I brought this to you a while back, but I got more tape on it tonight. It's this beauty former beauty queen and cheerleader, uh, like the perfect life. She marries the football captain, and they have these three beautiful boys, and they're living it up in Georgia. He's loaded. I mean, loaded. And she's now um, charged with trying to murder him, like hiring a hitman in the Bahamas. But what's really wild is what led up to this, because these pictures show a really happy, perfect family with a boatload of money and a private jet uh, vacationing in places that, you know, you see billionaires row. And then it got nuts. So we've got the tapes. We've got the police body cams that show the insanity that led up to the moment this alleged murder for hire plot is hatched and she goes into the clink um, charged with wanting to have her husband off by a hitman in the Bahamas. Lots of details there. Let's start with this, though, shall we? I don't know about you, but in the 1970s, when I was a kid, one of the greatest gifts at Christmas was a Polaroid camera. I know it sounds crazy for all you youngins out there, but the truth is if you got a Polaroid camera, it meant that you could see the picture like in seconds. You just count and it would come to life in front of your eyes. And this was a big deal because otherwise we had to take pictures. Then we had to drive them down to the lab, drop them off, fill out a big form, wait days or weeks, go back, pick them up, and then we'd like shuffle through them and half of them would be junk. But if you got the Polaroid for Christmas... You get to see the pictures right there Christmas morning. And then you could take pictures of anything. My family didn't have one. We couldn't afford that. We didn't get Polaroid, but friends of mine did. And I remember taking those pictures and thinking it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And I know I'm not the only one because I know someone else who was using a Polaroid. Dennis Rader was using a Polaroid. And I am sure he was taking pictures of his family and his church where he was a deacon. Probably taking pictures of those nice Boy Scouts that he was the leader of. But he was also taking pictures of his other hobby. Binding, torturing, and killing women. And then reenacting the murderous scenes, the crimes, the bodies, the way he had bound them up and hanged them, blindfolded them, bagged their heads. He would reenact them and then he would use his fancy Polaroid camera to take pictures. So I'm going to warn you, Tonight, in the next few minutes, you're going to see a lot of these photos. Big warning is that it's not the victims. Even though he's doing his level best to make it look like the victims, it's not the victims, it's him. It's still super disturbing because he's wearing their clothing, their lingerie of his dead victims, and he's reenacting exactly what he did to them, whether he was hanging them up or binding them, tying them to walls, tying them to drain pipes, uh, burying them, etc., etc. And the motel parties, this is where we got some, some newer stuff you may not have seen before. He'd throw himself a motel party, party of one, one guest. You can see the, the sign hanging on the door there, do not disturb. Newsflash, Dennis Rader, might have been smarter to put that on the outside of the door when you're doing this kind of thing. But he bound himself up in the corner of that motel room right there, dressed in the lingerie, tied up his legs, hoisted himself into these positions, and he'd get off this way. This was his form of autoerotica um, asphyxiation, and also he could relive his crimes this way. This was like a series that he did, these motel parties, he called it. 
such a loser that he had to call them parties, even though he was all alone. We've been looking at these not just for the prurience that people think you look at these for. We've been looking at them because cops are looking at them carefully today. They are looking at his pictures from decades ago because there may be clues in these pictures that actually connect to unsolved crimes, more victims he may have killed, more than the ones he admits to. He only admitted to 10. He's serving 10 life sentences in Kansas. But there is a lot of belief that he's got dozens, if not hundreds, of victims. What's difficult about all of this is that his family has seen these pictures too, right? So you just got to think about this for a second. You think you're lead, leading a life, you know, Christmas, the Polaroid camera, the whole bit with your dad, and he's a church leader, and he's a deacon, and, and he's leading Boy Scouts. And apparently, on the Boy Scout trips, he was taking reenactment pictures. He was doing this on the Boy Scout trips. Now, I can't tell you if some of the photos I'm going to show you in, an, in about a, you know, 30 seconds after I give you another warning. This is a different series. We actually showed you some of them on Monday night. These are additional reenactment photos. I can't tell you if the ones where he's hanging in the trees and buried, you know, up to here. I can't tell you if those are the Boy Scout trips. We can just tell you that he did do this during his Boy Scout trips. He would actually dress himself up. I guess he'd leave the troop with their hot dogs and marshmallows at the campfire. And he'd go off into the woods and do this, taking his Polaroid camera, burying himself up pretending it was one of his dead victims. He put on the mask and the makeup in his own home and in his, well, his kid's grandparents' home. And he would do these things. I don't know if that's a Boy Scout. I don't know if this is a Boy Scout trip. We just know that he did these during Boy Scout trips. He would reenact the murders and the binding and the torturing of his victims. It's so upsetting. This picture in particular, I want you to pay close attention to because his daughter has told me a few things. And I'm going to ask our control room to, to put that one picture back up so I can give you further details. Okay. So very upsetting to look at this, this reenactment. Again, that's Raider. That's not his victim. He's pretending. He's showing everything he did to his victim for himself so he can relive it. But his daughter has looked at these pictures and she has seen things she recognizes. For starters, she says that is my grandparents' basement. You can see the things up in the pantry there, right? There's Charmin up, up on the left-hand side there, uh, upside down. You can see it's Charmin toilet paper. You can see household items there on the pantry shelves. She also saw a few other things that she recognized. She said, that was the place I used to play hide-and-seek. That was the place that his little daughter at her grandparents' house would play hide-and-seek. That was the place he chose to do this. This was the place Dennis Rader decided was appropriate to do his sick reenactments wearing the stolen lingerie from his dead victims. His daughter said, I recognize not only that pantry where I played hide-and-seek, I also recognize personal family items, and I recognize blankets in the pictures. I recognize blankets that not only were ones I slept on in camping trips, but I also think the blankets were ones that were taken from victims. You know, it, you can't imagine for a moment if you're 
his kid looking at these pictures and seeing, oh, that was, you know, maybe my camping blanket. I slept on that blanket and trying to cope with that, right? But Carrie Rawson did talk about this in a, a podcast that just recently dropped. She talked about what she learned about his trophies after he was arrested. And she spoke to um, the true crime podcast called Surviving the Survivor. Here's what she said about those trophies. He goes and he does big bondage. And we believe, speculative, that he was reenacting what he did to Garber based on her crime scene right after. And there's a blanket that's been unrecorded that was missing. Garber is missing the blanket. In, in the bondage photo, there is a blanket that could match. Now here's where it gets really interesting. Dad reincorporated crime scene victims' uh, blankets and materials back into my family, and we used that blanket to camp out. I slept on a blanket that my dad possibly murdered a woman on and off on. It's, it's sort of, I, I would say next to impossible to process that. I don't know how she's doing it. I can't imagine, even 18 years later, what it is like for her to process this and see these pictures again, because again, these pictures are making news today. The investigators are looking at them, second looks at all of these pictures, because there may be clues in there that pertain to these cold cases. There are five, five of these cases they think actually might connect to him. Two he's the prime suspect in, right? Two of them, Cynthia Kinney and Shauna Garber. You just heard his daughter talking about Shauna Garber. But here is what Carrie said in the podcast. Again, it's, it's called the Surviving the Survivor podcast. Here is what she said when she visited her father and she asked him if he had actually killed more than 10 people. Here's how she put it to the podcast. Take a look. I go, is there more than 10, Dad? And he goes, he goes, it's 10, and he holds up a finger. He's right-handed, and he goes, he, he's in cuffs, guys, okay? So he's in cuffs. He's like this little old man. He's in cuffs. He goes, he goes, it's 10. Now, show me how you would, how would you guys do 10? How would you guys do 10? Like this, right? Mm. And you would hold this, right? Or you maybe would do that. Are you going to be moving that zero? No, because it's a solid 10. I go, is it 10, dad? And he goes, 10. And he rolls that zero. And I don't think he, because there's no cameras, right? And he says it silently, and he goes, and now I'm thinking, good God, man, how many times are you rolling that zero? Because I think you're trying to tell me it's more than 10, and you don't want it on, on audio. Again, that's Carrie Rawson um, speaking to the podcast Surviving the Survivor. I am joined now by Phil Waters. He is a retired homicide detective who's investigated more than 400 homicides. So, Phil, um, what do you make of what Raider's daughter said about the numbers, the sheer numbers, the one zero zero, however many zeros he was trying to uh, communicate to her? Well, great to be back with you, Ashley. I, I will tell you this. I'm just listening to what you talked about here, and oh my gosh, uh, I, I don't think I've seen anything this graphic or salacious, uh, even involving the prolific serial killers. This guy has kind of set himself apart, and I, I certainly give credit to Carrie. She has carried on a crusade for the victims and their families in this thing, and she's trying to get to the truth 
about all of the victims. And so she confronts her father, and, and he's doing this sign language uh, scenario thing with her. I think that it is it is no big leap to presume that if he was guilty of 10, he may be guilty of 100. So I, I, I don't think that's a, a far leap at all. So I am curious about what's different now. Look, you and I have been around the block. I've been in this business 35 years now. And I looked at pictures very, very differently as a cub reporter than I look at them now. And I'm wondering, as a cop, how would you look at these pictures now as opposed to 2005 when he was arrested and they found the big trove of hundreds of these these pictures? What might they see differently? What what perspective, what prism are they looking through that's different? Well, you're, you're looking through the prism of, of time that has passed by and that gives you an opportunity really with a fresh set of eyes to look at these things and you will see things i mean i've in my own career i have looked at pictures 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 and then i'll go back later and look at those pictures and i will see something that i didn't see before because you don't capture everything in one glance and as detailed as you are sometimes something leaks out to you that you just didn't see before so they're going back through the journals they're going back to the pictures and now they've got the full scope of, of whatever depraved sick events that he was involved in and they're looking at him i think with a, a broader picture of the possibility of more murders on the horizon that they're going to be able to associate with him phil you know, he was so meticulous in his documentation of what he did to these poor women. Uh, you can see his level of documentation. He recreated, photographed, and he would put these in this journal uh, connected to each and every kill. He was writing a manuscript before they arrested him about his murders. So I'm just sort of curious as to why we wouldn't know more. If there were more and he was this meticulous about making sure he wrote everything down. Um, why should we believe there is any more? Well, remember uh, some of these. In fact, you've already mentioned one, Cynthia uh, Kenny. Those that was his 1976, I believe, is when that that occurred in Pawhusky, Oklahoma, and it involved a laundry mat. So we look in his journal, and there's some reference there to. Um, PR, uh, bad laundry day or something of that nature. Bad wash and day. Yeah. Bad, bad wash, wash day. day. Mm-hmm. And so now we're looking at that. What does that mean? So now we have, uh, I'll call it an admission that we associate with that particular case because she was missing out of a laundromat. So they've got information now that they're able to, to connect these links and looking at it in a different view and as, in terms of his remember these are i think the documentation is is that he started this activity in 74 and so we're talking about 76 here so i would presume that as he gets further into this this activity that he just loves that his documentation gets better over time so he's starting at the beginning He's documenting some certain things, but then as he starts to, these killings proliferate, he gets more detailed about each one of them. And now he goes back and he, these these pictures are incredible, I gotta tell you. And he, because he's thinking about these every minute of every day. 
This is what is on. Everything he does is geared around finding the next victim. And when he does that, then he accomplishes the task and does it in a manner in which he does it. And then he documents it. And then he relives it over and over and over again. He is never satiated about the desire. And this is all a, a, this, this depraved sexual component of sadism. Yeah. And it, it is, he's never satiated. He's and he, never, he, and he brings he it home. You know, he brings it home to grandma's house and starts reenacting in grandma's basement where his daughter played hide and seek and now has to live with the fact that she slept on a blanket where someone was likely murdered. It's go to the place you're most secure. Go to the place you're most secure in being without the possibility of getting caught. So unbelievable. Sure. What risk? Um, Phil Waters, as usual, great perspective. Clearly, um, all those investigations uh, has given you a lot more knowledge about this than the rest of us. So thanks for sharing. Appreciate it. Thank you, Ashley. Have a good day. You too. It's always good to have Phil on the program. And by the way, tomorrow I've got an exclusive interview with the Missouri detective, Lori Howard. Lori Howard says that they are getting very, very close to pinpointing Dennis Rader's location at the time of the 1990 murder of Shauna Garber. You heard Rader's daughter talking about Shauna Garber. This is the second case where he's the prime suspect. And there is some activity So tomorrow night, make sure you tune in, 10 o'clock Eastern. We're going to um, talk to that detective exclusively about what it is they've got and how close they are. And then also coming up next, death by nitrogen, nitrogen hypoxia. Is this the newest form of capital punishment that's going to be all the rage? Might it replace the electric chair, lethal injection, firing range? One state wants to be the first to give nitrogen a try for the worst of the worst offenders. So how does it work? Nitrogen Hypoxia 101, coming up. So Kenneth Eugene Smith wants to uh, suffocate. I think that's a really weird thing to say. But that's what he's asking for. He wants to suffocate. Die by lack of being able to breathe. Now, he's going to die anyway because he's a death row inmate, and Alabama wants to kill him using nitrogen instead of lethal injection, which they tried before. It didn't work on him. It was a vain thing. But nitrogen hypoxia, as it's called, it's kind of untested. It's really untested. It's completely untested. We don't know how much nitrogen you need, how long you need to be breathing it. We don't know. Like, we know if you use a firing squad and you shoot someone in the heart, you're going to die. We mostly know if you get lethal injection, you're going to die. It's just kind of iffy, you know. This is the, um, these are the, the preferred methods right now. Firing squad in a couple of states and lethal injection and a whole bunch of others. There's other methods on the books, electric chair and all the rest, pretty barbaric stuff. But the cool thing, and I say cool because I'm always fascinated when people are trying to figure out best ways to kill people. That's what I do for a living on this show. I'm just always kind of mesmerized by when the state is trying to do it, when our government is trying to figure out best ways to to kill people. It's not about what you think about the death penalty. It's not about the morals here. It's about the way we do it, right? got a constitutional right to not have pain and suffering and all that business. So 
nitrogen hypoxia basically means that you breathe in nitrogen to a point where you get no oxygen and you black out, pass out, die. So Kenneth Eugene Smith has asked for it. He says he wants it. He's petitioning to get nitrogen hypoxia instead of the lethal injection. All right, okay. There are these other states who have other methods, right? Like Idaho is reinstituting the the firing squad. Are you listening, Brian Koberger? Death penalty case, quadruple murder. And the firing squad, that went into effect just a month ago, July 1st, right? Uh, Two months ago. Um, And they're building the actual chamber for firing. And if they go on the Utah model, so you get seated... You know, uh, on a wood panel like this with the sandbags on either side and the five shooters, they all line up in a wall. They each have two rounds, but one of the shooters has blanks. Nobody knows who it is. In South Carolina, where they also have that form of death penalty, the firing squad, you're actually strapped to a metal chair. And there's a hood placed over your head, and three Department of Corrections volunteers have rifles. They shoot through an opening in the wall. That's how it's done there. We reached out to Idaho, to the DOC, Department of Corrections, just to say, hey, how's it coming along, that uh, chamber you're building for the firing squad? And they said no estimated timeline for the completion just yet. I want to bring in now Robin Marr. She is the director of the Death Penalty Information Center, national organization dedicated to serving the public with information on issues surrounding capital punishment. Robin, I am so glad you are here. I gave a real layman's description of what nitrogen hypoxia is. Can you fill in the blanks? I think you got it just about right. Unfortunately, it's uh, the functional equivalent of uh, putting a pillow over someone's face and suffocating them to death. Um, Mr. Smith will be forced to breathe pure nitrogen and uh, without oxygen, his cells and soon his organs will fail. I mean, that's going to be the way it proceeds. Uh, I say it should be the way it proceeds because this hasn't been tested. As you've noted, we've never executed someone with this method before in this country. And so we really don't know how this is all going to unfold. So the cruel and unusual part of the Constitution is what kind of trips us all up on how we kill people. Um, How cruel and unusual is it to breathe in nitrogen and pass out and then eventually die while you're passed out? Well, we just don't know. I mean, that is the question. And and part of the question that we're all asking here is, is why is Alabama turning to this method now. Now, you said a moment ago that Mr. Smith wants to be killed by nitrogen hypoxia. It should be noted that uh, the state of Alabama tried to kill him using lethal injection. They spent four hours jabbing him with needles, trying to find a vein on his body uh, before they ultimately abandoned this effort. So I think it's pretty reasonable for Mr. Smith not to want to endure another torturous session like that with lethal injection. So he's actually chosen the alternate that Alabama has on its books. But I think we can say probably with surety that Mr. Smith doesn't want to be facing either one of those methods of execution. Oh, I can imagine. But, you know, he doesn't have a choice at this point. It's more, um, you know, what, what's what's available. Maybe his choice is what's the least of the evils to him. I am curious about the, te- the untested aspect of it. How exactly does one test? You know, like you can't just test on people, uh, the amount or the time of exposure, that kind of thing. So if it's untested, how do you get it tested? 
Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, what we look at for all of these methods of execution is to make sure that we have people who understand the drugs, the equipment, they've been trained properly, and they know what they're doing. What we've seen, unfortunately, in execution after execution are what we call botches, and that is terrible examples where prisoners are spending hours sometimes writhing in pain, calling out, uh, saying their body is on fire, uh, terrible spectacles because the training has been inadequate, because the drugs have expired or from an unknown or you know sketchy source, um, and a variety of other problems. Now, Alabama managed to botch three executions in a row. And then in a very hurried and and uh, quick uh, review of its policies, found that no changes were necessary. So mm. the question really is, why isn't Alabama focusing on understanding what went wrong and trying to understand uh, the ways it can do better instead of just switching to a new, untested and very risky method of execution. And I recognize there's a lot of viewers out there right now who are saying, who cares? They never cared about how they killed their victims and how much torture and suffering the victims went through. And why should we care if they suffer? But again, we do have a constitutional provision against cruel and unusual punishment. This is who we are as a higher order. So listen, it's really good to have you. You know, Robin, will you come back again? Um, and beyond, as we continue to look at this this uh, evolving story of how to execute people. I'd be happy to. Thanks. Good to have you. Robin Marr uh, joining us live tonight. And coming up in a moment, I have some brand new police body cam of Lindsay Shiver. Lindsay is that one-time pageant queen and cheerleader accused of plotting with her Bahamian lover to kill her super rich former football star husband. We were wondering what on earth could possibly have been going wrong with this couple. Like the pictures just show this perfect life, right? What went on leading up to the alleged murder for hire plot? What led to that? And now we don't have to wonder anymore. We have the actual 911 tapes. She's freaking out, apparently. She's but, hypomanic. But, she has a mental issue. All yeah. three of the people in the car have a yeah, I was curious about that, too. And who's this lady? Oh, you're about to hear from the mother and the mother-in-law. Uh, we're going to play those tapes next. So um, I would have wanted to be Lindsay and Robert Shiver. Like, what a life. They got a $2 million house in Georgia. They got a private plane. Uh, they vacation in a place in the Bahamas. It's called Baker's Bay. If you know anything about it, it's like billionaire's row. It is money. Okay. She at Auburn meets the man of her dreams. She's a cheerleader and a beauty queen, and he's the captain of the football team, gets drafted to the NFL. I mean, wow. They have three beautiful little boys. It's like the American dream right there in those pictures until it wasn't until she got arrested for plotting to have him killed by her Bahamian boyfriend uh, and his friend in Bahamas. So she's posting up in the Bahamas, right? Got locked up, got bailed out on 100 grand, but can't come back. She's, she's there. She's going to be up on, like, attempted murder, plotting to kill. It's crazy. I was dying to figure out what happened, like, what went wrong. There got all these pictures, and then this, like, catastrophe. So what, what led up to it? And today I started to learn what, what led up to it. Let me take you through the tapes because from like February through April this year, they each called 911 like five times on, on each other. Let's start with February 20th. Robert, 
calls 911, uh, asks the police to accompany him back to his house in Georgia. He wants to pack some stuff up, and he says, quote, my kids are there. I don't want it to be presented as she goes and screams bloody murder, calls the police over nothing, and, you know, to try to have me carried off in a police car. Then April 12th, call to 911. Robert says, it's something weird. I got this mysterious thumb drive mailed to me. And then my mom got one, too, mailed to her house. And it's pictures of my wife on vacation a couple weeks ago. And I don't know what this is. It's weird. That's what Robert calls 911. Then April 30th gets a little bit more crazy. April 30th, Robert calls 911 to say, my wife, Lindsay's gone off the rails. That's his words, gone off the rails. Tailgating my mom, he tells the police. So the police go and they switch on the body cam and they stop the cars, okay? And Lindsay, who's tailgating her mother-in-law, um, says that everybody in her mother-in-law's car has mental illness. And Robin Shiver, the mother-in-law, says Lindsay's, quote, delusional and might even be on drugs. But I thought you might want to see it for yourself, so take a look. Saying that you're following them, obviously, and that you got a gun, which no. isn't illegal. It doesn't no, ma- I don't. It do- doesn't matter, though. But I don't. And oh my god. Yeah. Oh so god. she, you're mother-in-law, something car. is. She's freaking out, apparently. She's but, hypomanic. But she has a mental issue. All yeah. three of the people in the car have mental issues. She left the kids this week and went down to the Bahamas. She could have gotten hold of some drugs down there that everybody thinks she's definitely on, but we can't prove it unless we get a hair sample. So if we could get a hair sample and y'all send it off, or if she could get checked out by a doctor right now, they might find out more that she's been doing these last four days in the Bahamas. Well, it wouldn't be long before there was uh, an alleged murder-for-hire plot hatched in the Bahamas. Um, allegedly, Lindsay, uh, with her boyfriend, hiring their friend to kill husband Robert. He's okay. He's alive. She got locked up. I want to bring in Lauren Mathias. She is the host of the Hidden True Crime podcast and YouTube channel. She's been following the case closely. Good friend of the show. So, Lauren, there's a twist. There's always a twist. But this twist is interesting because in that whole business with the body cam... Uh, Robin, mother-in-law, is on the phone with mom, Lindsay's actual mom. So mother-in-law and mom are talking, and it looks like Lindsay's mom is siding with mother-in-law. That is not good for Lindsay's case. No, when when your own mother is siding with the mother-in-law, I think we have a concern. And I also have a concern when someone says, all three people over here against me have a mental illness, I would say that's also a red flag. Yeah, you bit know, of a red flag. Um, yeah. Hey, can you tell me, though, about the merits of the actual case itself? Because all this business, that's all like a sideshow, although I'm sure it'll likely be, you know, uh, they'll attempt to enter that into a case against her if there is one. But can you tell me about the Bahamas case? Like, do they have really good evidence? Because all I saw in my perusal was that they've got a text where she has a picture of her husband and she sends it to the um, or somebody sends it to the uh, alleged hitman with the words kill him. Well, I, I've hyperbolically used that I could have just killed him uh, a lot, too. Do they have anything more than that? 
Well, I think that's what we're all interested in, right, Ashley? Because this is the Bahamas. It's not the U.S. We can't go and send in our FOIA requests like we always do. We can't gather all the evidence that they have and find out more. So we do know and we have heard that there is this text, this infamous text, this kill him text with a picture of Robert. You know, it's fairly it's fairly damning. But then what else do they have? We don't know the they feel like they have enough to go forward with trial. We're all waiting and wondering what in the world they have. Their attorneys claim, her attorneys claim, no, this is a joke. It was a joke. But uh. I don't know if it's simply this WhatsApp text. It was a WhatsApp text also. That's that's a little interesting, too. What else do they have? Whatever it is, they feel like it's enough. Well, that means you have an invitation back because we're going to continue covering it as soon as that evidence starts to drop. Lauren Mathias, uh, host of the Hidden True Crime podcast. Thank you for being on again. Thanks, Ashley. All right. Coming up next, um, it's kind of a breakthrough moment for scientists who are working to explain one extremely famous UFO sighting. So it was a flat metallic object as wide as a basketball court. It was hovering over O'Hare Airport with loads and loads of witnesses. Enter the physicists, dozens of them. They all got together to drill down on this mystery. And they're now publishing their findings. And we've got them. We're going to share them with you next. And also today, the United States government has pulled back the curtain on what it knows about UFOs. Wow. That's exciting. But hold it. Is what they're doing really transparency? Or is this the equivalent of military jazz hands? That's next. Do you remember back in 2006, there was this thing at Chicago Air O'Hare Airport that happened, uh, like a dozen United Airlines employees all saw something in the sky above the airport, like for five minutes. It wasn't just a little thing. It was like five minutes long. And the thing that they saw, which you can see in the picture here, that was kind of a crappy picture, but it was 2006. Um, it was like metallic and it was 50 feet across. It was big, uh, shaped like a saucer. What do you know? And it zipped away almost instantly after the five minutes, right? It was, it was a really well-known, unidentified flying object incident, famous. And as it turns out, a group of about 30 physicists, all PhDs, like they all got together like a huge coffee clatch, and they decided to drill down on it and figure out what they could about this unidentified flying object. And they have published their findings. They didn't really figure out what it was, okay, because so, I think, you know, it would have led every newscast. But they did say something about its shape that's kind of, like, groundbreaking. Um, they say it really does match, these are my words, by the way, it matches what any alien aircraft would need to be if they were going to bend space and time and if they were going to travel great distances. And they're releasing way more of their findings in super smart language that I have trouble understanding. Uh, if you want to read it, you can go to the website called The Debrief. But in UAP news, also the Pentagon has a brand new agency that just dropped. And it's super cool because it allows all government and military personnel to upload uh, stuff that they see that's crazy, bizarre, and mysterious. Like, you know, the, the UAP uh, sightings. They can upload it to this agency. And the agency is also sharing with all of us what the government has. And that's where I bring in one Nick Pope, 
who worked closely with the UK Defense Ministry studying unidentified flying objects. Nick, what's your reaction first to this all-domain anomaly resolution office, also known as Arrow? That's the place where they, they can upload the info that they see, the, the employees, and then the rest of us actually get to consume what the government knows. Yes, they've existed for some time, but this website went live today, and it is a step in the right direction, for sure. But in, on, on the other hand, it is something that has been mandated in the current defense bill that they should do. So they are really only fulfilling a remit that they have had for some time and are actually a little bit late on. But it's, it's good news, though the big complaint from people will be, look, this is for the government and the military. What about the public? There's still nowhere for them to report their sightings. So that's the next step, I would imagine, if they, well, try this one out, baby steps, and, and if it works well, open it up maybe to the rest of us. But can I, before I let you go, can I get your feelings about what this, um, this group of physicists, you know, decided and what they've published regarding the 2006 incident at O'Hare? What do you think about what they said? Well, it's very interesting. And when physicists are saying this, as opposed to, to people who just uh, look at this as a hobby, I think we should all sit up and pay attention because the science needs to, to fit for all this to work. And when the scientists are saying, look, this is exactly what you would expect to see, then it, it tells me that uh, there is something substantive to this. And, and, you know, again, it just shows that this is being taken seriously by not just the government, but by science and academia. And that's the way it should be. So good news today. Well, I can see the smile. Uh, Nick Pope, thanks so much for being on. Always appreciate having you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Still to come. You know um, how in the movies, the bad guys uh, do jailbreaks and they're super successful. In real life, it really doesn't work out that way a lot. Um, and up next, a jail inmate uh, gives it the good old college try, but winds up a lot worse off than when he started. And talk about the irony. Wait until you hear why he was in the jail in the first place before that attempted escape. Full details next. Okay, I'm going to close out tonight with this, um, like, mwah story uh, about a bad guy getting his comeuppance. Do you remember uh, Nagasi Zuberi, that Oregon man arrested last month for allegedly kidnapping a woman, holding her in a cell that he built out of cinder blocks in his garage? Thank God she managed to break out and get to the police, who in turn picked him up and locked him up. But guess what? It is a lot harder to escape from a properly built cinder block cell, a.k.a. a jail. Um, and it appears that Nagasi Zuberi has found out the hard way. The guards at the county jail in Oregon caught him trying to break out of his own cell. He was busted standing on his bed, trying to smash the window using an improvised tool, they called it. Newsflash. Uh, jail windows are not smashable. They are made from reinforced glass pretty much everywhere. The guards do not take kindly to this kind of business, so they moved Zuberi to another cell with no windows. Not unlike the one in his garage, allegedly used to imprison that female victim. But now Zuberi can add escape attempt to the long list of charges that he's going to have to fight. And this one has a lot of witnesses and a lot of evidence right there. 
Uh, thank you so much for being with me throughout this whole program. It's been delightful to have you, and I hope you will come back again tomorrow night. I have something special. Missouri Detective Lori Howard on how they're getting very, very close to pinpointing Dennis Rader and his exact location at the time of an unsolved crime. I'll see you tomorrow. Cuomo's next. everybody. Uh, first of all, I hope that as we head into Labor Day weekend, I hope it's full of good memories.